morning, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Parent University, and um, my name is Jeff Summers. If you weren't here last week, or if you kind of new to Perimeter, or you just wandered in here because you saw we had donuts. Um, my name is Jeff. I'm the I'm the high school pastor here at Perimeter, and I see and recognize a lot of you from last week. So you're very brave to be back here to talk about sexuality for week two. So we appreciate that as well. Um, let me uh, let me pray, and we'll. We'll jump into our discussion today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, uh, Lord, just calling us to be parents. And Lord, it's not a surprise to you that we're raising our kids in, in this day and age in the United States of America. And we pray, God, that you would give us guidance and direction, that, that uh, this morning you would speak to us by your word and by your spirit, help our conversation, Lord, to be honoring to you, help us to be humble before you as we learn and grow, and Lord, equip us to speak to our kids, to model for our kids um, appropriate attitudes and thoughts towards sexuality. So we, we pray you would guide us in this discussion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so just a quick recap of last week in case you weren't in here. So we are, uh, again, this is Parent University. We're talking about ways to help equip you to parent your teens and tweens. Um, we cover a variety of subjects, and this, this is the second week of a four-week series on sexuality. First two weeks, we're going to try to talk about holy sexuality or healthy sexuality and what the Bible has to say about those things. And then the second two weeks, we're going to focus more on how the culture presents sexuality and what, how we can approach that with our kids and talk to them about those things. And uh, we'll also cover pornography in the last couple weeks as well. Um, so a real quick recap of last week. So we talked about the difference that we have, uh, that what the church is saying kind of loud and clear to our kids, right, is this idea of don't have sex. And um, that that's just a very simple message. Most of our students uh, know that if they've grown up in the church. They're not supposed to have sex until they get married. Now, we don't often go very far beyond that. And that's part of the reason we're having this series, that we need to be equipping our kids as to the why behind that. And we compared this really with this idea of don't touch the stove, right? When our kids are little, we say, don't touch the stove. My staff was laughing last week. They thought we should have t-shirts made up that just say, don't touch the stove, you know, and to give them to the kids. But, but right, we talked about how sometimes our, our instruction for don't touch the stove is even more involved than don't have sex before you get married because we tell them why, right? Because it's hot and we tell them there's consequences that you will get burned. And sometimes we don't go into all of that uh, with our kids in regards to sexuality. And so we need to be better at explaining and going into the reasons behind it. But it's even worse than that, right? Because we know that in society, every TV show, every song on the radio, every movie talks about how great touching the stove is, right? It talks about it's fantastic, and there's no consequences, and it's amazing, right? Our kids don't have that kind of pressure when it comes to touching the actual stove uh, that we have in the regards to sexuality. And not only that, we tell our kids not to touch the stove, and sometimes what? They do it anyway, even when we tell them the consequences and things like that. So considering how simple a thing that is, and sometimes they still touch the stove, we're up against a pretty big uh, challenge in regards to training our kids for sexuality. We talked about last week that God made us male and female, that we are image bearers of God, and that, we, that we correspond to one another in every way, the way that he made men and women differently, that he 
does say, I made you male and female, that we are image bearers of God. And then we really went into this idea of the one flesh relationship, that the main reason of the why behind don't have sex before you get married is this idea of one flesh. And that there is a, there's something happening in that relationship that is a mystical, I call it a mystical like union of souls is the way I've seen one author write it, that there is something that takes place that we are a physical, sexual person, but we are also a spiritual person and there's no division of those things in scripture, right? Uh, Greek, the Greeks did that. We have done that in our society where we kind of say, oh, your, your personhood is separate from your physical body, but the Bible never talks about it in those terms. In fact, he says you're, you are so intertwined with each other and with God that all of those things come together. And you'll notice last week, I didn't talk about, what did I not talk about with why not to have sex? I didn't mention pregnancy. I didn't mention STDs. Why didn't I mention those things? Part of it is because those are natural consequences that a lot of society already talks about. That's what they're going to hear at school, and they're going to hear things like a condom will keep that from happening anyway. But honestly, I think that this idea of one fleshness and the spiritual consequences are more, uh, have more of an effect on us in some sense than, not, not obviously you have a child, there's a huge, or any of those things would be a huge effect, but I'm just saying that no one's talking about this aspect, the spiritual aspect. And that is, I think, an incredibly important aspect that we need to discuss. Um, so we were designed to reflect the Trinity. And you see the, the graphic chart that we have. The Bible speaks about this, this one flesh idea, this mingling of souls. And we see that uh, we reflect the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in husband, wife, and the Holy Spirit. That there's a, there's a reflection of God's design. And we went through a lot of scriptures last week. And again, you can listen to the podcast, which is already up. Or look at the scriptures that were mentioned about this idea that, you know, we are in Christ and Christ is in God the Father and all of us are intertwined with them. And then he talks about how if you have sex with a prostitute or someone else, you are, you are uniting the Spirit of God to a prostitute or uniting the Spirit of God to someone else. And so, you know, we went into all of that last week. Um, so clearly the Bible speaks that there's something greater that is happening than just a physical relationship. Um, some things we didn't go into last week, and I want to I kind of revisit a little bit of that. So we put up a graphic last week that talked about if you have multiple partners before you get married. Okay, let's see this graphic. All right, so this is an idea where the guy has slept with Marsha, Becky, and Tracy, and the woman has slept with those guys, and that you take, when you intermingle your soul with other people before you get married, you're taking some baggage, you're taking a part of them into that marriage relationship with you, right? And this is a, it's a difficult truth, and I put it up there to show us this is a, it's a real deterrent as we're talking to our kids about that, but there's some things that I wanted to point out about this chart that one is you see that it kind of took away from the Holy Spirit and the number, that's, that's graphically not the way that's meant to show it. It really is just meant to show this union. It doesn't mean you have any less of the Holy Spirit, okay? So I want to point that out. Uh, God is alive and well, and when he indwells you, he indwells you completely, more or less, based on our sin pattern, right? Um, you can be filled more or less with the Holy Spirit. But I didn't want to mislead you in regards to that. And we don't know in what degree this affects us moving into our future relationships, okay? We know that it does, that we carry this baggage with us, that there's some kind of connection 
Um, you know, I was listening to a sermon on the way home from the retreat last night, and uh, Tim Keller has several great um, sermons on sexuality online, and, and I, was, I was listening to one of them, and he was talking about this idea, and he was saying, you know, this spiritual oneness that you have when we have sex with our spouse is designed by God that you, you have, it's designed to reflect the oneness that we have in every aspect of our lives with them. So we have oneness with them economically. We have oneness with them relationally. We have oneness with them emotionally, right? There's so much in this, the way God holds up marriage, this oneness is supposed to reflect our relationship with him, right? Uh, and so this oneness is so complete that, that it, the sexual relationship is reserved for the special place in that area. And that when we, when we enter into that oneness with someone else who, who we do not share the oneness in all of those things, you know, think of what that does to us. And it does help us enter into our, our marital relationships with baggage. And to what degree, I, I don't know. I don't know, because it's a mystical thing. It's, it's mysterious in the way that we're connected. But there is a connection there. And we don't want to mistake that. Um, and the last thing I want to say about this is God's power comes in and overcomes our sexual sin. I want to reiterate that over and over and over again, that it's not like God says, well, every other sin I forgive, but sexual sin, whoa, you know, nope, that's the unforgivable one. No, you know what? His power can come in. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences, right, in the, in the, the things that we do and the way that they affect us and our relationships moving forward, but it does mean that his forgiveness is so complete, because he talks about every time we sin, really, and, and Keller said this in, in the sermon as well, every time we sin, it's really adultery against him, right? That's how he describes it over and over again throughout the Old Testament, that we constantly commit adultery against him in all of our sin, and he takes it very seriously, all of our sin. And so we do want to keep that and put it in its proper place, that he does bring forgiveness and he can bring healing into those places. Right, we talked about how an illustration of you take the fire out of the fireplace where it's designed to be and move it around our house. And yes, it can leave scars and it, it burns, but we can still put it back in the proper place and still enjoy it, right, where it's designed to be. And so we want to keep that in mind as well moving forward. But this is a sin that is against the body. And it, this one flesh is, is mysterious. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So again here, Paul is pointing out there is something mysterious that's happening here. There is a connection. When you sin against your own body, again, if this was just a physical thing, um, there would be no reason to point out and say, wait a second, this is different. There's something special that's happening here. And I really think that the specialness that he's pointing to here is this idea that of body and soul oneness that takes place. And that's why sexual sin is different from other sins, because you are somehow connecting it to your soul and it has consequences. We know this like intrinsically. Think about when you were in high school or college and you had a friend or maybe this was your in interaction where you saw someone who was sexually active and you know they're horrible together and they need to break up and they shouldn't be together. And what happens? Man, they just keep ending up back together, back together. There's something pulling them together constantly. And it's because, again, they have, they have gone together in a way that unites them that is not meant to be outside of that covenant relationship. And so this destructive relationship back and forth takes place. 
and they can't get out of it, and it just causes more damage. And so we see that. Uh, you've seen it. We just haven't known necessarily had the language or even seen in Scripture how much it points to this idea. But then I want to point out here, too, that we have mistakenly, though, sometimes made sexual sin worse than other sins. Because we know it's in a special category, because it says this is different because you're sinning against your body, we may say, oh, well, sexual sin is worse than every other sin. And we don't want to go to that place. It's different, and the consequences may be different, okay? But we don't want to necessarily put it in a hierarchy. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that about that later on, but I want to go ahead and point that out. The other thing I wanted to point out is I may have left you with an impression last week because we ended with this whole idea that God's plan for sexuality, right, is that we would be naked and unashamed. Do you remember that? So we talked about this idea that at the end, when Adam is looking at Eve, right, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, finally, at last, I have a helper that is suitable for me, and it says that they were, that they were naked and they were unashamed and they were together. Um, that can, so that's the, the ideal situation. Um, we should have, yeah. So this, this ideal situation, and Cammie talked about this where she said Adam and Eve experienced this ideal situation for a hot second, right? She said, you know, and, and I, I like to believe that Adam and Eve had a long period of time without sin in the garden before they, they ate of the apple. Some commentaries say it was like a day, <laughs> you know, in my mind, I like, they're like, oh, God created the rules. And then the serpent came out day three, you know, and I'm like, oh, please let it be like year three that that happened, that they could have this wonderful, amazing time together and be naked and unashamed the way God designed it, at least for a while. Right. And enjoying the garden, at least I hope that that's the way that it, that it transpired. Um, but I do want to point out that Adam and Eve could experience naked and unashamed only because they were sinless right? We, we really want to remind ourselves that right after they sinned, they became what? Naked and ashamed, okay? Was there another sexual relationship involved with that? No. Did one of them have a, commit adultery? Was there a porn addiction involved? No, we got nothing. Uh, it was just the two of them, and they went day one from naked and unashamed, sin enters the world, and they go to naked and ashamed, now, I point that out because we also don't want to tell our kids, hey, if you guys are virgins when you get married, everything is going to be amazing. This is going to be the greatest thing ever. Day one, it's going to be like the greatest sex you've ever had and that you're going to be naked and unashamed with that person forever. Well, Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed and they didn't have any of that baggage, right? So we don't want to set our kids up for this. What the heck? You did a bait and switch on me. I saved everything I, you know, and I go into this and wow, we're struggling, right? Um, it can be all kinds of problems that you have. Uh, there are difficulties in denying yourself and telling yourself that there's this ideal, right? Sexuality can become an idol for us. There's this ideal that, uh, that I am striving for. And you can tell yourself, if, if a guy or a girl really loves me, they won't want to have sex with me. And if you tell yourself that for five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years before you get married... And then you get married, and now your husband or wife wants to have sex on a regular basis. You can be kind of offended by that. Because your strategy to make it there has been to say, no, if they really love me, this isn't going to happen. You can't just turn a switch now, right? And so we take that baggage into our marriage. Or maybe, and this is a serious, like, 
I've heard a pastor say more and more, and we'll talk about pornography later, but more and more with this porn society that we live in, uh, a lot of pastors now, when they meet with a couple, they talk to them, do marriage counseling, and when they got, talk to the guy alone, they say, tell me about your porn addiction. They don't say, tell me, have you looked at pornography? Let's just talk about how serious it is, because they're taking that into the marriage. Because a lot of guys, even Christian guys, are saying, you know what, I don't want to have sex before I get married, but maybe I'll manage my sexual, uh, the fact that I'm waiting so long with pornography. Not realizing the damage that they're doing to themselves and their expectations and things like that as they go through that. But that's their strategy. So I don't want to set us up thinking, well, okay, if you wait, everything's going to be perfect and hunky-dory because you're naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed is the goal. It is the design originally, but we are broken. We're broken images of God. And we enter into our marital relationships with brokenness, whether, you know, no matter what level of brokenness that is. Different levels of uh, brokenness that we enter into that with. And so, you know, these are, these are factors that we want to be talking to our kids about as they move through life, okay? And that's, again, why we're going through all this scripture and why we're talking about this stuff, because this is an ongoing conversation that we need to be having with our kids, okay? Um, we're going to take a, uh, our time of discussion now, move to a little around the tables, and um, we had some technical difficulties this morning, so I didn't get these questions on the, on the board, um, but I'm going to ask you, I'll ask you the questions verbally. You can start talking. Cammie will write them up on the board um, as well. So this is actually going to move us into the next stage of where we're going with our discussion this morning, talking about singleness and sexuality. So what is, what is the best age for a person to get married? Throwing that out. What's the best age, you think, for a person to get married? What are the problems associating with waiting until then? Okay. Um, what are the problems associated with getting married earlier than then? Okay, I want you to think about that. And you can pick any of these questions. You don't have to go through all of them. How do you think our church is doing at valuing singleness? How are you preparing your child for a season of singleness? And how would it make you feel if you knew your child is never going to get married? Okay? So let's throw those questions down, and you guys talk about that for about 10 minutes, and I'll come back. All right. I hate to cut our discussion time short because I know usually you guys are having, you look like you're having at least some great conversation, so I do hate to break in, but if we're going to get through everything, we need to get going. Um, so, you know, if we talk about this is God's, what we had up was God's design for, for marriage, this is his design for singleness, okay? So his... His idea or his design for singleness, right, is that we would be so filled with him and that that would be satisfying, that that would be where we are. Let's look at let's look at some scripture. Um, So first Corinthians seven says this. So now as a concession, not a command, I say this. And this again is Paul talking. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One has one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 
And then 1 Corinthians 7.32 says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. Okay, so there's some really interesting things in this passage that, uh, that we need to unpack. So first off, what does it say about singleness? What does it say? Um, is it just, well, grin and bear it? Or is it, well, first he, he describes it as a gift. Okay, some have the gift of singleness. And he calls it a gift, first off, which is kind of interesting. So he says, some have this gift. Uh, each has his own gift, one of one kind and one of another. So he basically says, everybody doesn't have this. But definitely some people do. Some people will be called to singleness. And then, what does he say about the gift? Do you remember? It's kind of an interesting word that he uses. He says, it is good for them to remain single. So not only is singleness a gift, but he describes this as a good gift. If you can remain single, that is a good thing. Now go back to our question. How does our church, or how does the church as a whole, treat single people? You know, it's like they all got little round marks where people touch them with 10-foot poles, right? Because they are considered, you know, hey, you know, we'll talk about marriage as the ultimate goal and we're having family stuff. And, and we don't really talk about singleness very much. And we definitely don't talk about it as a gift. That this is something that is positive and should be celebrated in the church even, this idea of singleness. Okay? And I don't think we do a very good job of that. Um, for sure. Um, now, but then he goes into, in the later passage, he says why this is a gift, okay? I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things. So if you go with that original pie chart, which is you and the Holy Spirit, uh, what is your life purpose? Our life purpose, by the way, is... To expand God's kingdom. That's what we're here to do. Did you know that? I mean, you, that, that one doesn't have anything to do with sexuality. That's free today, just for you. Our life purpose is to expand the kingdom of God. That's why he put you here on this earth. That's why he saved you and brought you into his kingdom. He said, now you're a part of my kingdom. Guess what? Because you're a part of my kingdom, help me expand this kingdom. I've given you gifts to use for this purpose. And now he may call you to do it as a lawyer Right? He may call you to do it as a doctor, as a plumber, whatever it is that God's called you to do doesn't mean you have to be in full-time service. But you know what? Think of the ability for the single person to focus on just... Think of how much time we spend just focusing on our marriages. Marriage is hard. Do we tell the single person that that often? Hey, by the way, if you get married, it's work. <laughs> it's it's uh, keeping that relationship going takes time right? It takes investment. It takes all these things. I've seen this worked out so many times, and I, I have the privilege of working with a large youth staff here, and watching youth workers come in as single residents or as single people. I've interacted with so many single youth directors over the years. Man, you've never seen a more diligent youth worker than a single guy or girl. They are spending time with your kids. That's why we have these young residents, man. They're going after your kids night and day, uh, lock-ins, whatever. They got the energy. They got the time. They're going, going, going. And then I see one of them get married. And guess what? Ministry changes. 
I mean, Randy Pope tells a story about that. I've, I've heard him, I don't remember what context, but he tells a story that when he and Carol got married, he, was, he came, you know, he was like, well, what? his time wasn't his own anymore, and he had no idea what to do, that he had to fit her into his schedule, you know? And because he was going after people all the time, and then now he's married. Wait a second. She actually expects me home at dinner, and she wants me to spend time with her, and I can't just go after the lost all the time, right? We can't just go after the kingdom all the time because that relationship takes work and it takes time. And then I see those same youth directors and youth workers have kids. And boy, it changes the way they do ministry. And a lot of, you know why a lot of people don't stay in youth ministry? Because they can't figure out how to transition into being married or how to figure out how to have kids and do ministry because youth ministry is exhausting, okay? And Students want to hang out late at night and early in the morning and all over the place and, and do stuff that a lot of times with a family, you just do not have time to do that. And so a lot of times it changes. So when you have that incredible mobility, and Randy talks about this, single mobility, a single person can go, you know what? Yeah, I am going to quit my job and move to Bulgaria and help fight sex trafficking. I can do that. It's just me. I can raise support for one person. You know, even that, going on the mission field as a single person versus with a family, it's incredibly simple compared to with a whole family and the amount of money you have to raise. And all, I mean, it's a lot more complicated thinking about the schools. And think about that. I mean, just the ability to invest in the kingdom with no impediment in that regard. Okay? So it is a good thing, and it should be something that we celebrate. So it's a good gift from God. It's something that we should celebrate. Now he says, if you're not called to do it, you don't have self-control, or if you burn with passion, don't, you're probably not called to singleness. Now here's the thing, we do want to be careful. This doesn't mean that they're a robot. Well, if you're a robot, then you can go be single all the time, because you're not going to have any desires or any, never want to get me. It doesn't mean that a single person won't want to get married sometimes. It doesn't mean they won't have desires and be tempted and things like that at times. For sure, they will. They're human. They were created sexual. Remember that? So that's what we've been talking about this whole time. So again, having the proper expectations to say, hey, this may be where they are. That doesn't mean that they're there forever and that God will help them if he's calling them to it. He'll help them get uh, more and more understand that calling and that gift that it is. That sexual desire is not sinful, that we were created for it. Um, and I do want to point out, you're not more or less holy just because you're single. That's the mistake the Roman Catholic Church made, right? In saying, oh, I see this, so you just are married to the Lord. This is a great idea. All priests cannot get married. Boom. You know, they took that and went a step further with it, which God did not say to do. Um, and they, they just took it a step farther. Well, of course, this is, and now we have all these sex scandals and all these things going on because there's a lot of people who've been bottling up uh, desire that they probably weren't intended to do, did not have the gift, and were called into that realm. Okay, so thinking about this idea, uh, we how do we prepare our kids then to steward their body? If they're if they're single, we need to point out this idea. Hey, this is what you are right now. You are married to the Lord right now, and you, it's just you and Him. And how are you going to steward your body? Now let's talk about this. Who does the body even belong to? So 1 Corinthians 6.13 says this. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And we won't go into that right now. But God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
Okay, he goes into this whole section. 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, great place for you to read up on all this. That's where I'm getting all, most of these scriptures. So there's a good place for you to go and read it all in context. I'm kind of jumping around. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. God created your body for the purpose of honoring him with it. That is a stewardship thing. Your body is created to honor God with it. And then we've already read this. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality sins against the body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Okay, so he gives a couple reasons here of why we're supposed to honor God with our body. Okay, and I'm just going to point out two, the two main reasons. One is God created your body, so it's his, right? He made it. He designed you. Last week, we went into the whole Psalm 139, right? He, he knit you together in your mother's womb. He created you male and female exactly the way he wanted you to be. All your days were foreordained and written before one of them came to be. So he created you exactly the way he wants you to be. He knows everything about you. So he created this body. And then he's saying here, and he died for it. You were bought with a price. When you are a believer, he didn't say, I saved you. Now go be sexually immoral. He's saying, I saved you so that you may honor me and be an example of holiness before people. Remember, your purpose is to expand the kingdom of God. And so that is our purpose. And so our body belongs to him. He made it, and then he died for it and bought it again, right? He redeemed it. And so he's in the process of redeeming it over and over again. Now, on top of this, your body belongs to somebody else. If you're not married, if you're married, it belongs to your spouse. If you're not married, you are stewarding it for your future spouse. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7. Now, concerning the matter which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. So there he says it again. Hey, it's a good idea not to get married. Got to remember, hold that up. Singleness is a good thing. But... Because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. There he's saying, hey, all of you aren't called to singleness, so go ahead and get married. Um, The husband should give the wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife her husband. If you get married, you should have sex with your spouse. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive each other except perhaps of agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he is saying, hey, husbands, your body belongs to your wife. And if you're single, we need to say, hey, guess what? Your body belongs to your future husband. Your body belongs to your future wife. Now, by the way, this was a radical concept in the ancient world. Not that a woman's body belonged to the husband. That was pretty normal. Women were seen as little more than property in the ancient world in a lot of contexts. But think how radical it was for them to read this and go, oh, by the way, husbands, your body belongs to your wife. When they read that, that was scandalous. That was, whoa, you got to be kidding me. You mean, you know, this, my body belongs to my wife? Yes, it does. And so this idea of stewardship of this body, it it glorifies God. He made it. He paid for it. And by the way, I'm holding this for somebody. Assuming that God calls me to get married, this is a gift that I want to give to someone else. It's their body. And so I need to steward it for them. 
Um, so here's the thing, and this is why I asked some of these questions earlier. How should this challenge our ideas of when you should get married? Should it challenge our ideas of when you should get married? What's the average age now that you think people get married? Just the average across the board. 28, 29. I think it's 28 for women, 29 for men. Um, it's creeping up all the time. All right. Throughout the history of the world, men and women have gotten married when they become sexually active. Throughout the history of the world, the normal age to get married for girls was between 13 and 16 probably, and for guys like 15 to 20, right? I mean, just read some ancient novels or you know, watch some, watch some TV shows, <laughs> right? It's, it was pretty young. Uh, they would betroth them, and they would be like, oh, whoa, you're ready, to, your body's ready to have sex. Let's, let's pair you up with somebody. Now, we say, oh, wow, your body's ready to have sex. By the way, everything we've talked about up till now, right? You were designed to do what? Have sex. You are a sexual being. We're not going to deny that. Sex is good. God created it. Hey, will you mind waiting 15 years? And by the way, every song on the radio, every TV show is going to talk to you about getting on the, you know, touching the stove. Don't forget. Right? So we're going to wait while all of society and everything is pushing you towards this one thing. You wait. Go ahead and get through school. You need to get through grad school before you get married. You think that's a good idea? Or are we setting our kids up to fail? Hey, by the way, oh, and by the way, have several sexual partners before you get married. Because there's a really good chance that's going to happen. What is the higher value to us? I think we're called to live counterculturally. This is not, we're not very countercultural in this, in this place, in this day and time. Okay? Uh, in our culture, right here in Johns Creek, upper middle class, all of us send our kids out to school. If your kid came home freshman year and said, I found the one, I want to get married, we're pretty hot and heavy, we're off at Auburn or wherever, you know, and, and you know what I hear when I hear stories like that? You know what most parents say? Well, if you're old enough to get married, you're on your own. I'm not paying for school. That's it. Right? I mean, maybe some of you were told that. Well, hey, if you're ready to get married, guess what? You're off my insurance. You're on your own. There you go. Go. We are totally not in line with, with I think, some of the things that Scripture's saying. We, and I'm, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just throwing out the question. You need to be having this discussion with each other and with your kids to say, hey, is it more of a value that my kids are enter into a relationship without all the baggage that can happen sexually or is it more of a value that we have you know that their career is off and running okay um cohabitation how does this center into it cohabitation is a major thing that is on i can't tell you we've had so many people come into church they're back at church they're getting ready to get married they start right start they get the, they start having the discussion oh and by the way they're living together of course they're having sex they're living together. They're having sex. And they're, they say they're Christians and they don't understand. So like this cohabitation thing, something's getting lost in translation for us 
that, oh, if you're going to wait till you're 30, by the way, live together. Every TV show is showing that, right? All of society is saying living together is normal and normative and fine. And we have to be speaking against that again. Uh, Tim Keller, again, in a different sermon I heard him say, talked about that living together is like a one or two year long job interview. Okay? That it's horribly destructive in those relationships because people think, well, this is a good idea. We can find out if we're compatible. We can not. No, it's horrible because you've entered into, remember, this oneness that we talked about economically, oneness uh, emotionally, oneness in all of these ways, and uh, oneness sexually, and yet there's no covenant. There's no promise. There's nothing there that says you're safe. All we're saying when they enter into that relationship is, oh, well, we'll keep trying this out and see if you make the cut. If I want to, if I want to make this permanent or not. Okay. So we've got to speak against that. When you're watching a TV show, we got to take that remote and use the pause button and say, Hey, we, this is, we like this show. We watch this TV show. It's not that bad, but did you notice that couple's living together and there's just no consequences? Do you think that's the way it really works out? I don't think it is. Um, lastly, let me close with this part. Sexual sin Again, and we want to reiterate this, is not beyond the reach of God. Okay? Um, 1 Corinthians, again, in in chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, nor... uh, None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed... You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And I want to point this out to remind us, again, who are all sexually broken already, right, in this room, to remind us, even as we talk about this, hey, guess what? This is not beyond the reach of God. The whole church, you know what the church was full of? Because he says, such were some of you. The church was full of homosexuals, adulterers, uh, swindlers, liars, drunkards. Uh, that, who, that is who the church is. That's who we are. And we need to remind ourselves of that. And he says, hey, guess what? That's what you were, and you were washed, you were cleansed, you were made righteous and holy, and God accepts you, and he loves you. Now, he does say, you can't live in this. Like, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not that these sins are beyond the reach of God. Of course they're not. What he's saying is, if this is your normal practice, you might want to doubt your salvation. Okay? We can't live in this place. Do you struggle with these things? Yes. Will this be your habitual walk now and you can have any confidence that you're a Christian? You might need to really examine and say, are you really a believer? If this list represents you. And again, you notice these other things. Some of these lists that are listed mention like like materialism. Swindlers is really like serious business practices and 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 going hard after people in a way that could be a little bit unethical, right? It's it. So, I mean, you have things in here. Gossip is one of them. You know, like, do you gossip? Like, so we want to, again, make sexuality something that is more bad or worse than some of these other things, and it's not. We need to remind ourselves of that, okay? So none of these things take us beyond the reach of the kingdom of God. Um, and I want to remind us just with, think of the woman at the well. Right when he met her, Jesus said to her, okay, wow, you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. Did he say, whew, that's just rough. Sorry, I'm going to take my water and go. No, he didn't, did he? He said, wow, you know what? 
you're just right. You are perfect for my kingdom. Remember, she said, went to town and said, he told me everything I've ever done. You know, she was, she was like, here's my life. Here's my brokenness. I'm bringing it all to Jesus. And Jesus is like, I'll take all that. I will take it. And welcome into my kingdom. Go and sin no more. Okay, so we need to prepare our kids for singleness. We need to not lift up sexuality as the ultimate idol or the ultimate sin. We need to remember that there is forgiveness in all of this, that they're steward, teach them that they're stewarding their body for their future spouse, and they're stewarding it for God because he paid for it and he made it, okay? So these are the ways that we want to start to arm our kids, and we want to have these, relations, these conversations when they're younger and constantly have them. Don't save it all for some awkward conversation when they're 13. Start talking about it all the time when you walk along the road, when you rise up, when you lie down, pause the remote, turn down the radio, and have these conversations. All right, Cami, you want to come up and share with us uh, a little bit here as she weaves, I can get through. As Sorry, she weaves her way through. Sorry. Ooh, I'm loud. Hey, guys. Um, yeah, it's Jeff and I were talking about this. Um, I'm Cami Summers, and I'm Jeff's wife, and... Um, a lot of what I do with Parent You is just to kind of come in and give a parent's point of view because I think all this stuff is hard. And as Jeff and I were talking about this, the whole idea of holy sexuality, he said it was interchangeable with healthy sexuality. And as I was thinking about that, I just thought, well, that's not what the world says. I mean, that, that isn't what you hear in the world, right? The world doesn't connect healthy sexuality with holiness. In fact, it says healthy sexuality is being who you really are or doing what feels good or following your heart. And so there's this whole idea of healthy sexuality in our world that's a lie. And the world is broken. It's, it can't help but lie, right? But we want to teach our kids to be discerning in the face of that. And many of their friends are... <laughs> embracing this broken idea of sexuality the because the don't touch the stove doesn't sound very fun does it I mean it just doesn't and and the idea that you can be the boss of you you can do whatever you want whenever you want there's no rules nobody can tell you what to do that's attractive to me I mean if I'm honest that's I like to be the boss of me I like to give me what I want you know, um, but I've been around the block enough to know that I can't be trusted. My own heart is self, set on self-destruction and indulgence, and I will always spend too much money at Target. I will always choose dessert over salad, and I will always would always rather sit on the couch and watch a television show than work out. That's just the truth. Um, and I'm thankful that God knows and he loves me too much to let me, to leave me with my bad choices, you know. And, and I think that applies to our kids too. Like, I think it's fair to be honest with them and say, hey, I know this looks attractive. You know, your body was made for this and... And it feels 
you know, God, you know, there's a temptation there that's real and it's, and what the world says is attractive. And so I guess, you know, usually when I come up, I, I remind us of, of the gospel and the fact that God loves our kids more than we do. And, but I think you guys know that I, I just wrestle with the fact that this is really, really hard because what the world is saying to our kids is what they want to hear and what we're saying isn't. You know what I mean? Am I the only one that that's hard for? Like, it's really hard, right? And, and our own story muddles into it, too. And so, I don't know. I just, I had something else to talk about when I was preparing. I, I just think that this whole idea, like Burger King says, you can have it your way, the message of the world acknowledging that this isn't a new message. It's the same message that was whispered into the ear of Eve in the garden. And, but the thing that I came to at the end of my thinking about all of this, my pondering about it, is that we aren't the guardians of truth. God created truth and God belongs to truth. Truth belongs to God. He's the author of sex and sexuality, and he is a better defender of it than we are. We can point them to truth, but only God can give it root in their hearts. And faith is believing that he will. On my very best day, I believe. And on my worst day, I repeat the words of the other parent in scripture who said, I believe, help my unbelief. So I don't know if that resonates or if that you can identify with that, but I just want to lead us in prayer um, as we think about these things. Dear God, holy sexuality is our goal and our desire and our desire for each of our children, and we would wrap them in bubble wrap if we could guarantee that it, they wouldn't get broken or get hurt. Um, by the world and the lies of this world, but you know that there is a sin and there is enough sin in the heart of each of our children that that bubble wrap will not protect them from. And really, what they need to know and understand is your love is bigger, and your grace is bigger, and their need is bigger. Often we don't tell our kids, Lord, we don't, we aren't honest and authentic, and share our own struggle with them and. We can, they cannot know that this is hard. And so I just pray. I pray that we would be able to be authentic with our kids. I pray that you would guide our conversations. I pray that you would give us wisdom and that you would lead us to a deeper relationship with you that will spill over into our relationship with our children and that our children would know you and love you with their whole hearts, mind, and soul. And I pray for every parent here, Lord, with the struggle that we would not be motivated by fear, but that you would grow our faith and you would help us when we struggle with unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple things just to let you guys know. We have two more weeks that we're going to be meeting. There is a Facebook parent university. So if you're on Facebook at all, I did want to tell you that there's a face, there's a parent you, the podcast from last week is there. And so if you are wanting to share any of what Jeff 
taught on last week, and we'll try to put the podcast as it comes out. Um, sometimes that takes a week or longer. It just kind of depends, but that's easy for you to share if that's something that you want to share. Or even, you know, some of this stuff, listening with your kids, we're talking about it with our kids a lot. So, um, but that is kind of a personal decision with you guys. So are there any other announcements? Nope. We're here next week again, and I hope y'all have a blessed week. A happy Valentine's Day on Thursday if you haven't realized it's coming. (laughs) I do want to say, I think that Valentine's Day is a great time to talk to our kids about love and God's unconditional love because it definitely, the world proposes this idea of love, and God says this one, and so, you know, it's a good time to talk about those things. Y'all have a great blessed Sunday.